invite you to remain standing as we read our sermon text, which comes from Jeremiah, chapter 33, verses 14 through 16. Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You can be seated. Our preschoolers can be dismissed to their class. Your teachers should be heading on back. The back doors there, y'all can line up. If you're remaining in the room, I do want to invite you to pull out a copy of God's Word if you brought a Bible with you. Hope you have one. We'll be looking at uh, at least one other passage so um, uh, that won't be on the screen, so I hope you do have a Bible. If not, maybe consider pulling it up on your phone, and if none of that is available to you, then uh, before you look at the screens, scooch over to a neighbor who has a Bible and just admit your failure to bring one and say, yeah, I don't have one today. It's better to be looking at one than, than to just sit there without one, and if you have no neighbor next to you, then move rows and find one, and then if you can't do that, then you can look at the screens. Okay, all right, good deal. We're in Jeremiah 33. We're in our fourth week of our Advent series And this morning, we're looking at verses 14 through 16. We'll be looking a little bit at verses 17 and 18, a little bit back into chapter 32. But as we do that, we're going to see one thing. We're going to see how the coming of Jesus turns a world of chaos and conflict into a world of peace and wholeness. I think we can relate to the theme of peace this week, maybe more than any other, especially in light of just our, our culture here as Americans over the past uh, few years. Um, we live in a world of chaos and conflict, of brokenness and division, and you don't need anyone to convince you of those realities. They're, they're just true. Uh, so much, in fact, that it's difficult to imagine our lives without it. I'm thankful for, for passages in Scripture like Jeremiah 33 and like Isaiah 11, like Revelation 21, and, and the poetic imagery that it gives us. And the reason we have poetic imagery to ima- uh, to, about a peaceful world is because we have to imagine what that would be like. There's nothing we can really point to in our world and say, yeah. This, this wholeness, this peace, the completeness of, of Israel's hope for shalom, that it's kind of like this. No. No, it's not. You may have a really peaceful marriage, but we can't point to you as an example of God's shalom because there would be also examples of chaos and conflict in your marriage. And, and we just wouldn't be able to, to do that. We can't point to, to any government or nation, obviously, to say, hey, there's no chaos or conflict there. It's kind of like living in this place, you know. It's not like that at all. I would love to say, you know, just being in the bluegrass and, and being at the University of Kentucky, it's kind of like that. It's not like that. We, we score 53 points against UCLA and lose by 10. But we're an embarrassment, you know. We can't. There's no, there's no order. There's no order in the land, guys. Kentucky's struggling in basketball, too. No order. This is a world of chaos. Um, There are so many examples of that. 
You turn on the TV, if you watch TV at all, reality shows, news outlets, and sports shows. What are they about now? They'd be like, well, entertainment and, and reporting the news and reporting what's happening in the world of sports. No. Do you know what they're about? Conflict. That's it. That's what drives ratings. It's conflict. It's, it's hot takes. If you watch sports shows at all, you just notice those guys are like, hey, what do you think about the Dallas Cowboys this year? And it's not a reasoned thought. It's the, most, it's the hottest take they can give so that they can fight with each other and bicker because that's what drives the ratings. If you've ever seen the Paul Feinbaum show, has anyone seen or listened to the Paul Feinbaum show? If you want a good example, it's on the SEC Network. If you want a good example of what conflict looks like, he literally has a show, and the biggest like highlight of the show is he just takes calls from random SEC fans, and and they just all they do is they call and they, they yell about their coach or their team, or they just yell at Paul Feinbaum and they just argue back and forth. That show exists because of conflict and the entertainment that it even brings us. The chaos and conflict have been embedded in our world since the fall of Adam and Eve. The, the first scene we have after the couple is banished from the garden with their children is Cain and Abel. Conflict, chaos immediately enters into a world that was once ordered and peaceful by God in creation. And, and we are all like sponges that have just been dunked into this deep sea of conflict. And it seeps into us. And we almost don't know our lives if we're not in conflict with someone or, or see conflict about something all the time. If things are just kind of peaceful, what do we, what do we say? Oh, things are boring right now. It's boring. It's dull. We, we, we can't imagine the, the world that Jeremiah, that Isaiah, the prophets, and John in, in Revelation 21 envisioned. We can't, we can't imagine it. We're comfortable with the devastation of conflict and chaos. And in such a world, all it does, even though we're comfortable with it, and even though sometimes it entertains us, all it does is breed weariness, anxiety, despair, and all it does is steal peace, grace, love, joy. We live in a world of chaos and conflict. But the birth of Jesus signals something new. It signals a change in reality. The world won't always be this way. His birth is the beginning of a new creation that will be marked by peace. And then his return will be the culmination of all of that in which peace will be the new normal. So today we're going to focus on one central reality. Jesus has come to bring us peace. Now, this news of a coming peace was originally given by the Lord to Jeremiah at a time, as we've seen over the past few weeks, when both the people of Israel and especially Jeremiah were desperate for peace. When the words of this prophecy we, we just read were given, God's people were living as exiles in Babylon, and Jeremiah himself was at this point a captive. He was imprisoned in Jerusalem, the city uh, was, was under siege, it was under attack by the, by the Babylonian armies. Now, obviously, we are in a very different place. And you may think, well, I cannot relate to that. I've never been in a war-torn country. I've never, I've never experienced uh, a prison. Uh, you know, you, you may not be able to relate to a single thing that is happening in the immediate context of Jeremiah 33. But our need and longing for peace and healing is much the same. 
Maybe your life right now currently feels like the city of Jerusalem looked. And everything's just crashing down. It feels like your whole world's on fire. Your life feels like a barren wasteland that can produce no good. Or maybe you're just in the midst of your own conflicts. Maybe you are dreading with everything that's in you this coming weekend and maybe a little bit into next week as you know that when you gather with your family, one thing's going to be certain. We're going to eat good food and we're going to fight. <laughs> you know? And you know that. And you know it's coming. And you're dreading it. Or maybe you're just at war with yourself. And, and you, ha- you have no peace in your heart. As I mentioned this morning, it's like, I know I'm at peace with God. I know that. I don't feel very peaceful. And you're, you're at war with yourself, your anxiety, your depression. They're, they're weighing on you. Or maybe you just simply relate to the loss that the people of Judah would have felt. The loss of loved ones or the loss of your life as you've known it. No matter what you're going through, you and I are desperate for peace. We need the healing that it brings. We need the wholeness that it creates. We need what ancient Israel hoped for more than anything else. We need shalom. For millennia, the Israelites, they longed for this thing that they called shalom. And it's, it's a formal greeting. It often translates to the word peace, but it signifies so much more than that. Shalom refers to a state of being, a state of living that is marked by peace, but also completeness, wholeness, joy. It it refers to the, the integrity and wholeness of relationships. It refers to human flourishing as a whole. It it refers to the sense of safety and security. And and this feeling, this sense that all is right in the world and everything is rightly ordered in my life. That's, That's what shalom is. This was their greatest hope. It was the ultimate hope for the coming Messiah, that he would usher in an eternal age of shalom. So the people of Israel and Judah, they were waiting for peace, and so are we. And here today, we're going to see that God has heard the cries, not only of their hearts, but he hears the cries of our hearts. And he has intervened. He has stepped into a world of chaos and conflict, and he has brought the peace, the shalom of heaven down to earth in the coming of Christ. We're going to see that the peace we need comes to us in a person And then we're going to see what this peace means for us. So two truths. First, a king is coming. And second, that king is coming to bring us peace. Let's let's look at it from our passage today. First, a king is coming. Um, The backdrop of this passage, Jeremiah 33, 14 through 16, is immensely dark. If you just you know, jumped in today, and and the first time you looked at this passage is whenever I read it, uh, it's not going to hit you the same way as if you have been reading the past few chapters of Jeremiah, and I would encourage you to go back and look at some of that. The backdrop of this passage is cloaked in war and murder and bloodshed, captivity, destruction, and desolation. The city of God, Jerusalem, the land that, that was what? Flowing with milk and honey. It has become a barren wasteland. If you've ever read Cormac McCarthy's the book The Road, has anyone ever, ever uh, read The Road? 
No? Oh, it's a decent book. It's a decent book, but it's about this like post-apocalyptic time and the descriptions of the world of the road is, is much like what was happening here in Jerusalem. If that didn't hit for you, anybody ever seen The Walking Dead or, or, or anything similar to it? World War Z? No? Okay. I'm going to trust that some of you just don't like raising your hands. I know some of you have watched it. Okay, it's, think about that. Okay, if none of that relates to you at all, just think about Oxford. You know, just like total, just, you know, just desolate wasteland, right? No, no. Tuscaloosa, maybe? Okay. All right. Um, Jeremiah, at this time, received two words from the Lord in the span of two chapters. The first word from the Lord is recorded in Jeremiah 32, 26 through 41, is all I'm going to look at. And Jeremiah is in prison, and the city is under siege. And God tells us why with a word of judgment. Let's, let's go back. Look at, look at Jeremiah 32. I'm going to start in verse 26, and I'm going to read all the way through verse 41. Let's, let's just listen to the word of the Lord here. So it says in verse 26, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. So this, this is God, these are God's words. Here we go. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am giving this city into the hands of the Chaldeans and into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. What a word from the Lord. Jeremiah, I'm giving the city to Nebuchadnezzar. I'm giving it to him, and he will capture it, okay? Verse 29, the Chaldeans who are fighting against the city shall come and set this city on fire and burn it with the houses on whose roofs offerings have been made to Baal and drink offerings have been poured out to other gods to provoke me to anger. For the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. The children of Israel have done nothing but provoke me to anger by the work of their hands, declares the Lord. This city has aroused my anger and wrath from the day it was built to this day so that I will remove it from my sight because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah that they did to provoke me to anger. Their kings and their officials, their priests and their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned to me their back and not their face. And though I have taught them persistently, they have not listened to receive instruction. They set up their abominations in the house that is called my name to defile it. They built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech. Though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination. To cause Judah to sin. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place, and I will make them to dwell in safety and they shall be my people and I will be their God I will give them one heart one in one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them I will make them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me I will rejoice in doing good doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart 
and all my soul. Two words, one of judgment, one of grace. And the second word of the Lord comes in Jeremiah 33, and it picks up on that second part of that message. In Jeremiah 33, there's this continuation of a word of grace and peace, of reconciliation and restoration. And so while at the end of that, that passage that I just read, we have this, this great promise. I'm going to make a covenant. Um, things are going to be great. You're going to be my people. I will be your God. And we will dwell together and all this stuff. He starts to see how that will be fulfilled. We start to see how it will be fulfilled in, in Jeremiah 33. And in verse 14, it begins like this. Behold, the days are coming. In other words, life as we know it will not remain. It won't always be this way. There won't always be chaos and conflict. Days are coming that will not be like today with the city on fire and you in chains, Jeremiah. Now, what will happen in these days that are coming? Look at verse 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. This is important language. God's not making a promise. He's saying, I will fulfill the promises that I've already made. God's saying, I'm going to keep the promises that I've made to my people. Now, God has specifically promised that he would send a rescuer, a Messiah, a king, to redeem and reign over his people forever. The, the clearest form of this uh, comes uh, to King David as God makes a covenant with him in 2 Samuel 7. This is what we find there. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So God's making this promise to raise up a future descendant of King David to establish a perfect and eternal kingdom. Now here's the problem at this point. Jeremiah's receiving this word, and he's sitting in a prison cell in Jerusalem with the whole city under attack by the Babylonians, and he's just received this word from the Lord that, hey, listen, I've given the city to them. It's theirs. And, and now God's saying, now, but you need to remember the promise that I made to you that the kingdom of David is going to last forever. It's going to last forever. It doesn't seem likely. The problem is that many kings had come and gone since David died and overall they only established kingdoms of blasphemy and idolatry which led to chaos and destruction not peace and wholeness so the king that was promised the descendant of david that has been promised has not yet come has not been raised up and with the city in shambles and the people in exile it looks like okay well god has given up he's given up on his promise or you know maybe it's just been voided because of all of the idolatry maybe we just you know, reached our limit, and God reached his limit of mercy with us. And, and he, he will no longer keep this promise that he's made. It's null and void. But God is telling them, everything that I've promised you will be fulfilled. And they will be fulfilled in, in the way that I said they would. A king is coming. 
Okay, well, God describes what that fulfillment will look like. He says in verse 15, In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. And that language is really important. Okay, so if you picture this, this barren, dying tree standing in, in this just desolate field, um, from this seemingly lifeless tree, a branch is going to sprout up. It will, it will begin to grow. And, and he's saying a king will come. And you notice the language we have here in the ESV? A king will come for David. A king will come for David, which, which seems a little bit odd. It, I would expect it to say a king will come what? From David. Just in continuation with, with the, pro, the promise that a descendant of David will take the throne. But it says a king will come for David. Here's what that means. The covenant that God made with David, the promises that he's made in the past, they will find fulfillment. This is for David. It's for his sake. God entered into a covenant with David to say, your kingdom will last forever. A king is going to come, and when he comes, it will be for David in the sense that the covenant and the promise will find, vindic or will find vindication. It's going to happen. David David in this covenant. I have not forgotten about it. Don't lose hope, Judah. Don't lose hope, Israel. Don't lose hope, Jeremiah. The days are coming when the promised Davidic messianic king is coming. The plan has not changed. The promise hasn't been voided. Well, then God describes what this future king will be like. And this is so beautiful. It's really short, but it's beautiful. What kind of king is coming? Well, he's a Davidic king. He's in the line of David. He's a promised king, but what else? He's a king of justice. He's a king of righteousness. Look in verse 15. In those days I, and at that time I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. What will he be like? He shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. He will be unlike any of the kings that came before. He won't be like these awful kings that led the people of Israel to disobey the Lord, to blaspheme him, to, to uh, build shrines to idols, to replace the, the temple um, with, uh, and turn it into an idol factory. No, this king will come and he will be a king of justice and righteousness. He will not judge based on appearance or biases. He will not favor the rich and powerful. He is concerned with what is right, irrespective of the parties involved. He's a king of justice. He brings raw justice with full integrity. He will not allow the wicked to win. He will not allow his people to stray into wickedness. The word of his mouth will pronounce and execute judgment against all evil. He is a king of justice and he's a king of righteousness. He always does what is right. He is upright in heart. He is holy as God is holy. He is filled with righteousness. He is what the kings of Israel were always meant to be. He's a new king. He's a coming king. And who is he? Jesus. Jesus is his promised king. This prophecy was given, this promise was given so many years before. And when Christ came, he was the fulfillment. The New Testament writers make sure we know that and see that. They say, Luke and Matthew especially, both, let us in on this grand secret that the Christ who was born, this baby that was born in this obscure place to this, this obscure couple, the hometown of Jesse in Bethlehem, he was born. And he is the king who has come to reign over his people in justice 
and righteousness. Now, here's what I want you to see from this. Really, let's just ask a question. Why is the establishment of peace so dependent on the coming of a king? You know, that's, that's what we find here. That's what we know to be true. But why? Why couldn't God establish peace in a different way? Why? Or even Jesus. Like, okay, let's say it's through Jesus. But why is it so important that we see Jesus not only as a prophet who comes and proclaims God's word, not only as a priest who comes to, to intercede between sinful people and a holy God, but as a king to rule and to reign. Why is, why is this so important? You know, when I read from Jeremiah 32, we saw there that the Lord places the brunt of the responsibility for Judah's idolatry at the feet of who? The kings. The kings, the officials, the prophets, the priests, but the kings first. The kings who led God's people to build altars to idols. The kings who sacrificed their own children to a false god. Kings who stopped the worship of the one true God by closing the temple. The failures of the kings led the people, or to lead the people in justice and righteousness. What did they do? They brought judgment and chaos and war and destruction on the people and on the city. And more than that, I want you to see the influence of the kings if you think it, it doesn't matter. The people of Judah had become like those kings. It wasn't just that the kings were blasphemous and idolatrous and they led the people to do things that they didn't really want to do. The people themselves became blasphemous and idolatrous because of the leadership of the kings. The character of these bad kings was embodied by the people. So, if a reversal is to occur, if the city is to flourish, if righteousness, justice, goodness, and peace are to flow in the streets of Jerusalem, a new king is required. Peace comes through a person. It comes through a person. Not, not a program, not a, not a set of ideals that are given to us, and then if we would just follow them, then we can establish our own peace here on the earth. No, it has to come through a person, a king who will lead and rule and reign over his people and lead them in justice and lead them in goodness and lead them in righteousness. Only then will peace be established. Only then can the people of the Lord be saved and be secure. Now, I, I like to, to compare this to what happened in the early to mid-20th century. I think, I think what kind of happened there on a global scale uh, pairs well with this. In, in the later 1800s into the early 1900s, there were a lot of people in Europe who, who genuinely believed that because of the Enlightenment era, because of the industrial and scientific revolutions, they, they believed that those, those occurrences had put an end to wars. And they kind of looked back on their own histories and they were like, we fought all the time in the past and look at all the things that we were fighting over. We've advanced so much as, as, as humans that moving forward with, with all of the, the ease that it is to, to get work done and to provide for ourselves and provide for others and trade with other countries, there will be no need 
to fight over these silly things anymore. We've progressed past that. Wars are antiquated. They're, they're in the past. There's no need for war moving forward. We've progressed past it. And then you know what happened really early in uh, the 1900s? World War I happened. And everybody realized, oh, so all of the, all of the, the technological and scientific revolution, all it did was make war more bloody, to make it more destructive. That's all it did. It didn't actually bring us into an era of peace. Now, in the aftermath of World War I, what happened? The most desperate and devastated nation was Germany from, from the end of World War I. And when their hopes in human progress were dashed, what did they begin to look for? A person. They were looking for a person. They were calling for a savior, a Messiah, to come and bring them up from the ashes. And then Hitler happened. See, Germany, they rightly longed for peace and the coming of a person, realizing that, you know, human progress alone is not enough. They just looked in the wrong place. And like Israel many years earlier, they learned that there isn't a human leader capable of ushering in the peace our hearts most desire. In order for peace to be secured for God's people, there is only one way. A king must come. Peace comes through a person, specifically through the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, now, a king is coming, but he's coming to bring us peace. So we need to focus on what that peace will look like and how we can experience it. The essence of peace is described very well in verse 16, if you'll, if you'll look there with me. In verse 16 it says, In those days Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So the peace that we all need is marked by salvation and security, and we're going to see also transformation. The, the peace that we will experience in those days will happen when the character of the peacemaker is embodied by the people and city itself. Okay, so when the promised, just, righteous, Davidic king comes, he's going to do three things. He's going to secure his people, or he's going to save his people, he's going to secure his people, and he's going to transform his people. First, King Jesus brings us peace by saving us. In those days, the days when the branch of David sprouts up, when the king comes, Judah will be saved. Jesus is a king who delivers his people. And some Bible translations even use the word deliver instead of saved here. Judah will be delivered when the king comes. And not just from physical captivity. We've already, you know, seen how God is going to come and return his people to the land. Their, their deliverance from Babylon foreshadowed the future spiritual deliverance that Jesus would bring anyone who comes to him in faith. God's people will be delivered from their idolatry. So, so it's not like we're just going to finally learn the lesson that Israel failed to learn and stop chasing after idols. No, we need something more than that. We have to be delivered from it. We have to be rescued from it. We have to be saved from our idolatry. As we sang earlier this morning, come thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free from our fears and sins. Release us 
let us find our rest in thee. We will be delivered from our sin. We, we have to be. That's our only hope. If you think that by your own willpower, you can put sin to death in your life sufficiently, you're fooling yourself. You're fooling yourself. By nature, we are slaves to sin. And we cannot rescue ourselves. We cannot escape this spiritual slavery. Jesus has to come as a deliverer, as a conqueror. He has to come and release us from our sins. Sin creates chaos, always. It promises pleasure, it promises comfort, but sin takes advantage of our desperation and weakness, promising healing and wholeness, but then all it does is destroy. All it does is divide. All it does is enslave us to its passions. But Jesus has come to save his people. As a king, he comes and he rescues us. He pulls us out from the grip of sin and Satan. He has come to deliver us from everything that causes chaos and conflict in our lives. And by doing so, he delivers us from that experience, from that reality, into his peace. He's a delivering king, and he's a conquering king. This is so huge. He doesn't just rescue us from sin and pull us out of its grip. He crushes it in the process. He destroys sin. One day, one day when Christ returns, do you know what's going to happen? Sin itself will be tossed into a lake of fire, meaning that there will be no more temptation, that there will be no more destruction or chaos that results from sin. It, it won't happen anymore. There will be no more betrayal. There, there will be no more division. There, there will be no more adultery. There will be no more sin in, in the world. It won't exist anymore because Jesus isn't just delivering us from sin. He is coming as a king to conquer sin. One day its very presence will be gone. When we are under the rule and reign of King Jesus, the Babylons of the world cannot ultimately touch us. Neither sin nor Satan, neither disease nor death can defeat us. We are saved from the destruction that we deserve. Why? Because Jesus is king and he has come to conquer all of our enemies and deliver us from them in the process. But second... King Jesus brings us peace, not only by saving us, but by securing us. Securing us. When this king comes, Jeremiah writes here, Jerusalem will dwell securely. Now, when he received this word, Jerusalem was not dwelling securely. Jerusalem was being demolished. Buildings were collapsing, fires were raging, God's people were captives. There was nothing secure about the captivity. But the days are coming, Jeremiah writes, when the long-awaited, God-promised son of David, who is the son of God, will arrive. And when he does, security and rest will follow. We, we will be safe in the arms of the king. When he comes in and he promises us safety and security, we can count on it. It is ours. He comes to secure the city, to secure us as his people we can rest we can sleep those sleepless restless nights are always usually due to anxiety or fear 
about what may come. No, we can rest securely in the arms of King Jesus. But third, so when Jesus comes, he brings us peace by saving us, by securing us. Finally, most interestingly, he does it by transforming us. And, and this is what I want you to see. In those days, verse 16, Judah will be saved. Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this interesting little sentence here. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So just to be clear, so it says it, that's referring back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the city, will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So Jesus doesn't just come to establish peace. This is what I want you to see from this. He doesn't just come to establish it so that we can be saved, so that we can dwell securely. He comes so that we might experience peace. The city will be characterized by the character of the king. It's important to, to notice what he's saying here before we jump into the doctrine of justification, because that's what we want to do when we see this, right? We're prone to do that. We see this phrase, the Lord is our righteousness, and our minds immediately go to passages like 2 Corinthians 5, 21. You know, he who knew no sin became sin, so that we might become what? The righteousness of God. And that's not a bad connection. We're actually going to make it here in a minute. But, but first, we need to see that the peace Jesus brings though it is rooted in his substitutionary work on the cross as he's bearing our sin and giving us his righteousness, I think something else is being emphasized here. The city will be named, it will be characterized by the reality that the Lord is our righteousness. God's people won't just be at peace. They won't just be delivered and be protected by the king. They will share in the king's peace. They will be transformed by the king's peace and, in a sense, become the king's peace. Because Jesus has been born, we have a future reality of peace to experience, and we can experience foretastes of this eternal peace right now in three ways. First, Jesus has come to bring us peace with other people, with others, this, this horizontal peace. The city of God is going to be marked by order, not chaos. Why? Because, in part, we will physically, truly, really dwell peacefully with one another. There will be no more conflicts. Because Christ has come, wars will one day end and conflicts will one day cease. So, we should seek to live peaceably with one another now. And seek to make peace whenever possible. Um, one of our, our church members who is here, I was going to uh, uh, give you a hard time if you weren't here, by the way, um, Eric. Um, Eric Street uh, has probably served as an elder at Trace Crossing more often than any other lay elder in the history of the church. Is that safe to say? Probably so. Ah, yeah, yeah, he's too modest, yeah. Safe to say, I think he holds the record. We need a record book, Lucas. Let's work on that at the retreat. Um, I, think, I think he holds that. He's served more, more often um, than, than any other lay elder. Um, he was actually an elder when I was hired back in 2015, and then I was able to serve alongside uh, Eric for my first three years in my current role. And Eric even served as an elder when our former lead pastor was, was hired as well. 
Eric is a wonderful example of faithfulness to the local church. He is an example of what an elder should be. If you desire to be an elder, I would encourage you to have lunch with Eric and just pick his brain and just deal with the modesty for about 10 minutes and then just get to your questions. You know, he is, he is such an example of, of what an elder should be in our church. Now, over the past seven years, I've heard Eric reference one verse more than any other in our elder meetings or lunch meetings, especially when we've had to shepherd through conflict. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie. Sometimes, Eric, I did not like hearing it because I wanted to be upset and I wanted to be angry and and I was uh, I wanted to do something else. But Eric would chime in with Romans 12:18 time and time and time again. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. What a word of counsel to someone in conflict. As far as it depends on you, you can't control what someone else is doing. As far as it depends on you, you live at peace with others. Isn't that so transformative in the way you think about your relationships? It's so transformative because it's like, you may not actually be able to reconcile with someone. Reconciliation in a relationship may actually be impossible in this life. But as far as you are concerned, you live peaceably. You work for peace. You pray for peace. You repent where you need to repent. You do take all the steps that you need to reconcile on your end and trust God with the rest. I can't tell you how many times Eric has just blessed my heart whenever he's pointed us to this passage. And, and this is the reality that we see here. Because Jesus has come, this king who is coming, he has established peace so that we might experience it. He's come to establish a kingdom that is made up of a culture of peacemakers and peacekeepers. And, and while that won't be a, a full reality until Christ returns, we get to experience part of that now. You actually are. This is why we say it every single week. We are at peace with one another, objectively. Jesus has brought us peace. He has torn down every dividing wall that we could ever construct. So, in light of that, what should we do right now? Pursue peace. Live peaceably with some. No! Live peaceably, Paul says, with all. So far as it depends on you. Those who pick fights, your spouses, your kids, your parents, your co-workers. Live peaceably because this is the way of Jesus' kingdom. Jesus brought us peace to give us peace with others. But there's something else he does. He transforms us. The city will be called the Lord is our righteousness. The people will be characterized by the character of the king so we can experience his peace. That means that he has come to bring us peace with ourselves. All the inner conflict that you experience, all the anxiety, all the depression, all of the self-loathing, all of the mental health issues we could name, will one day be no more. One day will come to an end. Not because of progress in human psychology, but because Jesus has come and he's coming again to bring you peace. That's, that's the objective reality. Now he's, he's come to bring peace to your soul. And he invites us to share in it. So impart 
not perfectly, we can actually experience peace now. Do you remember our call to worship? Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. All of the insecurity, all of the inadequacy that we feel in our hearts will fade as the shalom, the wholeness of God, fills us. So if you're struggling this morning, if you feel like you have no inner peace, you're at war with yourself, you can still have genuine hope. You can truly look forward, not through the lens of sentimentality, the, the, this, well, you know, it just makes me feel good to say this. No, it is objectively true through the lens of the gospel. You can see a future of wholeness and healing. And in Christ, because he is our righteousness, because he is our peace, we can actually, imperfectly, be and feel at peace right now even when chaos abounds. We call this a peace that surpasses understanding. It, it can be ours. And that's why I would encourage you, right now as you battle the turmoil in your own heart, I want to encourage you, your desire for wholeness matches God's purpose in sending his son. You, you want to be healed? You want to be complete? You want the brokenness within your own heart to end, that matches. Not only what God wants for you, it matches his mission in sending his son. That's one reason why he sent Jesus. For, for inner healing and wholeness to be a reality for you. So as you pursue your own emotional healing, remember that God also wants you whole. And there's, there's one more reality here. Jesus has come to, to bring us peace, not only with others, with ourselves, but with God. When the promised king comes, Judah is saved. Jerusalem dwells securely because this king has made peace between God and his people. We are transformed into a peaceful people only when the Lord is our righteousness. If peace as an experience depended entirely on our own righteousness, we would live eternally in chaos. But God gave his exiled people and his imprisoned prophet an incredible word of hope. Despite their faithlessness, despite their idolatry, despite all the ways that they had turned their backs on the Lord, God stepped in to say a king is coming who will make peace between us? He put it this way in chapter 30. Their prince shall be one of themselves. Their ruler shall come out from their midst. And what will he do? I will make him draw near. And he shall approach me. For who would dare of himself to approach me, declares the Lord. And when that happens, this is what we find. You shall be my people. And I will be your God. How does the coming king make peace between a holy God and a sinful people? Because the coming king is also a prince. Look at verses 17 and 18. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Well, that makes sense with what we just read. Of course, a king is coming. But then verse 18, and the Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings 
to burn grain offerings and to make sacrifices forever. The coming king is also a priest. The coming king will stand in for us as our eternal priest, offering himself as a once-for-all sacrifice. The king who comes will take his throne through death. This king was coronated on a cross. His crown, thorns. And as the king's blood was shed, peace was made between God and man. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when peace will not only mark the kingdom, it will mark our lives and our experience with God. He will be our God, we will be his people, and we, because of Jesus, will dwell securely forevermore.